Well everybody, what's the crack? And welcome back to episode number 12 of the Inline G Flute Podcast with me, your host, motherfucking Inline G. And we're back today for a solo episode. Recently I have, I've spoiled you guys with guests and games and sangria and exotic accents, but today we're back to the core of this podcast. It's just, it's just you and me. Come on in, the water's lovely. We're back to the core, the diet, the usual diet of shite talking, musical rabbit holes and bitching about Americans. Today is no exception, especially for the latter. So I haven't seen you guys. I haven't spoke to you guys directly in quite a number of weeks. The last two weeks, obviously, we've had guests on the N9G podcast. And although it's been a lot of fun, it meant I had to record things so far in advance I haven't recorded an episode in a while. This is quite last minute. I'm recording this about 36 hours before it goes out. We're back to the usual organisation. But one of the nice things is I can talk to you guys about up-to-date figures for the growth of this podcast, which I want to get through quickly. So if you're a new listener, please just bear with me here for a few minutes. Not even a few minutes. Um, But to the other listeners, the ones who've been with me since the start, three months we've been at this podcast now, I got a lovely email the other day. My YouTube has hit over 10,000 views. Apple and Spotify have hit over 2,000 streams as well for this podcast, which I'm fucking buzzed about. And I am—I I genuinely couldn't believe this podcast would go anywhere near that. So those people who tune in every week or every other week, God bless you. I love you to bits and I've got plenty of things planned for you. There's also some rather famous flute players who listen to this podcast. I have it in very good authority because they fucking told me they did. So for all you big shot flute players out there, hello, bonsoir. It's good to see you. So thank you so much, guys, um, for tuning in, for supporting the podcast. It means the world to me. The reason I've also got all this up to date is because I'm now starting to look for sponsors for the podcast. It's now profitable. So I'll be firing out some very professional emails with figures and fucking pie charts in them soon. Because I'm that kind of man. So if you know any companies that might fancy sponsoring an episode of this podcast or a very wealthy, rich individual person who wants to sponsor this podcast, or an even richer person who is on their last legs and would like to write me into their will. That would be lovely. Because i tell you what, that Spider-Man 2 game coming out in a few weeks for PlayStation, it isn't going to fucking buy itself, lads. Those games aren't cheap and I need some moolah. And there are big plans for this podcast coming up soon. There are some big interviews coming up. I'm even high. I really am even high. I, I'll be recording four episodes this week. The plan for an upcoming holiday, we'll call it the Belfast, to go home. But in Belfast, I've got something so fucking cool planned, but I can't tell you about it yet because it's not 100% in the diary yet. But it's guests on the podcast, of course, and it's recorded in a very special venue, one that I couldn't believe I managed to get my hands on, and some guests that I can't believe I managed to get my hands on either. But I can't confirm that yet. But there are bigger guests planned. Once I get this Belfast interview out of the way and I get my little holiday there, when I come back, Paris is next on my list. And the flute players that are there, so I'm coming for them. I'm hoping to catch a big fish and get them on the podcast soon. Get the numbers up. So for the people who are tuning in with me now, stick with me before I hit the big time. You guys can come on in with me. So, anyway, what are we talking about today? Listen, the episode The episode is titled Rompal Galway Bau, The Royal Lineage. Now, that's obviously clickbaity as fuck, but, you know, you need those views, you need those hits. It's going to be part one of a two-parter, so a two-part podcast. The next episode will be coming out next week, which will sort of lean on. I wouldn't say it's a sequel, but it'll certainly, it'll be from the same cinematic universe as this episode. Uh, so, we are looking at what I'll call the Royal Lineage, basically the three 
the three kings of the flute, the three most commercially and artistically successful flutists of all time. Going from Jean-Pierre Rampal to then going to James Galway to Emmanuel Bayou. There seems like in the flute world there was only ever and only ever will be space for one truly great mega superstar, mega celebrity in the flute world and it tends to pass on. There's a small overlap between each period but it tends to pass on to the next one. So this is sort of the last 70 years. We're obviously in the Emmanuel Bayou era. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you guys about these three lads. These three lads. Who they are, what they come from, the links between them more especially. And how each one of them built on what the one before did to cement their place as the single great flute superstar of the generation. We'll also look at what made these three guys go from being flute famous to genuine A-list celebrity in some cases. Um, We'll also talk about the players their contemporaries, the players around the same time as them, who would have been vying for that title of world's most famous flute player, but never quite got there for whatever reason. So I'll be looking at a few of those, a few of the runners-up, if you want to put it that way. I do, it's my podcast. Um, So for flute players, I hope you find something new out in this episode. I find a lot out researching this. I find it very interesting, so I hope you guys get the same interest out of it. And for the non-flute players in this podcast, of which there are now many, I hope that you get a little bit of information to share at a party or a pub. Maybe you're sitting there and you'll be, you'll be having a pint and the, the boy or the girl or the person of your sexual desires will walk past and you will blow them away by saying something like, ah yes, I would compare this beer to the smoothness of Jean-Pierre Rampal's back recordings of 1976. And maybe you'll, uh, maybe you and that person will hit it off. Maybe you'll have babies. And maybe you'll name those babies Gareth. Or maybe you'll decide you don't want babies. In which case, you'll come to Gareth, what a segue, you'll come to Gareth for some Inline G merch. If you're on my social media, you've seen that we've got the first bit of merchandise for the Inline G Flute podcast. The prices should have been released for this, but it's only open to Europe and UK for the minute. You can see them sitting here. I'm sorry for the audio listeners, but the video listeners, if you haven't seen these yet, right up here in this little packet, we have individual, personalised condoms i'm so sorry for my grandparents who are watching this please turn this off it's a joke well it's not a joke they're real but they are in individual personalized inline g flute podcast punk condoms with the gorgeous new inline g logo which you'll see at the start the warming up video of this uh or the intro video of this episode you have seen it and it's got written beautifully on it toot my flute with a question mark they will be priced at three pounds or three euros plus shipping costs if you want them shipped you get a lovely letter with them you will get some other treats in there and it'll be your little piece of podcast history so if you fancy buying one either contact me directly or go check out my social media and you'll find them now strap in for a very opinionated episode which is going to be presented like it's factually accurate but it's not and that's the kind of thing you love on this podcast you love it you fucking do okay Part one of the podcast, we're going to start with the first member of this royal lineage, and that is Jean-Pierre Rompal. I will be saying Rompal, because lads, I do speak French, and I'm that kind of wanker. So I won't be saying Rampal. I don't like it. Anyway, Jean-Pierre Rampal. Listen, I'm not going to put his, I'm not going to talk about his entire life biography here. If you're a flute player, you'll know who he is. If you don't, and you are a flute player, pause this podcast. Get off. Go on the Google, get on the YouTube, give yourself a fucking education. You cannot play the flute and not know who Jean-Pierre Rampal is. It's a sin. So go do your homework and come back and tell me how it went. And for non-flute players, he was a soloist, chamber musician, recording artist, blah, blah, blah. So he was born in 1922, died in the year 2000. But his heyday, the big Jean-Pierre Rampal years, were sort of the 40s to the 60s, 70s. That was when he was 
the first flute player to become a true household name. So what set him apart? What got him to this level of celebrity above all his contemporaries? Firstly, and probably most significantly, is his love for Baroque music. This is really important. We take it for granted nowadays, to be honest, that the flute has so much beautiful music from this Baroque era. You know, you think of, obviously, beyond... um, Bach and Vivaldi, we have so many composers, from French composers, English composers, German composers, a wealth of Baroque flute concertos. And we play them as part of our normal repertoire and we take it for granted. But back in Hompas day, that was not the case at all. We have him to thank for the familiarity we have in our modern rep for it. Because back in those days, there was only a handful of flute players who had recorded maybe one or two Bach sonatas, the odd Vivaldi concerto, they might put it into a program for a concert, but they wouldn't really. It wasn't commonplace, but Ron Pyle adored this period. And he called uh, the music of this period the Golden Flute Generation. Um, and he had a proper burning passion for this music. He meticulously studied old scores, went to libraries to find new pieces, and he recorded them. And more importantly, he played them in concert. So as he was getting known, at this point, we're talking when he's in his early 20s, he's already known for being an exceptional flute player. He's doing all the right things, but his little niche now is... He's not going to concerts and playing what everyone else is playing. He's playing pieces that no one's heard of. But he's convinced they deserve their place in the repertoire. So he's sticking to his fucking guns. He also strongly believed the post-war Europe was really ready for Baroque music. He said, his exact words were, With all this bad mess we had in Europe during the war, people were looking for something quieter, more structured, more well-balanced than the Romantic era of music. He also did all this on his modern instrument, not on a period instrument. So he played it on his flute that was built at that time and not on a replica flute from the era of which the music was composed, the 1700s-ish. Which is now very stylish. A lot of people today will play on historically accurate instruments and try to recreate the style as closely as they can. But he didn't. He, uh, he actually says, yeah, a quote about him says here, he drew, instead of playing on a... The period instrument. Um, I shouldn't do that in the podcast. I'm sorry for the audio listeners. that got a real shock there. Anyway, instead, instead of playing on a period instrument, he drew on the full range of effects offered by the modern flute to reveal fresh elegance and nuance to Baroque compositions. It was this modernity, the richness and clarity of his sound, and the freedom and personality in his expression, combined with a sense of hidden treasures being shared, that caught the attention of the wider musical public. So after that, Pompal had, or Pompal, sorry, had the very lucky benefit, being at the right time, right moment at the right time, um, TV. TV was taken off big time. And he got on that bandwagon and he went to perform a lot as a soloist. Now, interestingly, Pompal didn't really play orchestrally. So he studied at the Paris Conservatoire, he graduated from there and he just became a soloist. Now, one thing that did stand him apart as well, it must be said, is his sound and his tone quality and his technical excellence, he was head and shoulders above the rest. But the niche of Baroque music is what sort of took him another level of fame. So he went from being flute famous to potentially classical music famous with this Baroque music. And then he went to famous famous with TV. So he started doing things on TV, concertos, concerts, all that kind of stuff. Um, And the thing to remember is, Hompal for TV, he was marketing gold. He was perfect for TV. He was so articulate the way he spoke. He was intelligent. He was charming, funny. He was charismatic. And probably quite importantly, he was so fucking French. He was so French. He's a big guy, 
big chubby guy, just loved eating, drinking wine, eating good food, didn't really give that much of a fuck about practicing, it seemed, was just great and jolly and wonderful all the time. He'd be the kind of guy you'd love to go for a pint with. And that came across on TV, his personality was scintillating on TV. He sparkled, people loved him for that. And he had this gold flute, which I've talked about back on episode two of the podcast, which has horrible audio. I fucked that up bad time. I turned the microphone the wrong way around. I didn't realise. Um, but anyway, you can go back and listen to that episode if you can bear it and hear about his uh, his gold flute. But the gold flute helped with the marketing thing too. He was on TV. He was a big, cool, charming French guy with a gold flute. It just looked great. So he was on TV and people really got into him. And then he even appeared on the fucking Muppets Man. Jim, Hem- Jim Henson, the Muppet Show. He appeared on that. He appeared with uh, Miss Piggy and he played oh, the gentle lark thing anyway he went on that and that was it that sent Jean-Pierre Hompa's career into the fucking stratosphere now he's away now he's someone he's a household name essentially at the time especially in France the USA and Japan those are the three big places where he really was on TV all the time and he was a household name he was the guy so now he cemented that legacy and there's a very important theme we're going to have through the podcast about how they got there, what they did to get there, and how they pushed on to the next level. So how did Hompal push on? It was collaboration. And that was so important. So he collaborated with a lot of big artists. If there was a famous classical musician at the time, Jean-Pierre Hompal played with them. He did so many concerts with Rostropovich, the incredible cellist, the very famous cellist. He did concerts with Arthur Rubinstein, the pianist. I think he actually gave the very first performance of the Poulenc Flute Sonata with Rubinstein in a private venue before he gave it public because Rubinstein's health wasn't great. David Oistrakh, the violin player, Pompal played with all these people and flute players didn't do that at this point. They didn't play with these other famous musicians but Pompal was so famous he could do that which just put him, opened up more of an audience for him. People who were listening to Rubinstein suddenly found Pompal as well while they would never have stumbled across a flute player without Pompal being there. And one other thing, um, he benefited a lot from the kind of time he was living because there was a lot of composers composing new music for flute. But not just new music, still kind of tonal. We haven't, we have went into the avant-garde scene and we have got a lot of crazy stuff going on, but a lot of the most, or a, a lot of the composers, composers around the time, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Gareth, a lot of the composers around the time were still writing tonal music. So they weren't writing... 12 tone or crazy stuff they were writing things that the general listener could appreciate one of the big examples of that is the francis poulenc sonata which is now a core piece of the flute repertoire and jesus christ go and watch the video on youtube of rampal i'm saying it like that so you can search it but it's rampal playing the second movement the cantilena the cantilene of the poulenc flute sonata oh my god it is ah yeah it breaks your heart it is a beautiful piece of music and Rompal benefited from being able to premiere these works that were just great music he didn't really do the avant-garde thing he did record the Pierre Boulez sonatine he's one of the few players to do that and he gave it his first recording and his premiere and it's a pretty wild piece but apart from that he stuck to tonal music so to summarize what Rompal did and this sort of blueprint perhaps of what makes the flute king he starts off fucking class at the flute already established as a flute player at a young age for genuinely unique technical skill and tongue. Very important that. So he's already brilliant. 
fucking class of the flute. Everyone accepts he's different. He's better. He's got something special about him, something unique about him. Then, to get to the next level of fame, he finds a niche. And for him, it's the discovery of Baroque music and the lesser-known pieces of Baroque music. That brings him further, because the repertoire is incredible. Brings him further. Then, his charm and his personality stick him onto TV. Match made in heaven. Marketing gold on TV. Then, the collaborations and the new compositions propel him on into the fucking stratosphere and that's where he becomes genuine celebrity and that was his path and you'll notice his path again now a quick note on the contemporaries of Jean-Pierre Rampard the other flute players who didn't quite get that title for one reason or another I've picked a few Marcel Moyes the legendary French flute teacher I think for one of the things he firstly the reason he didn't get to that level of stardom he was a very dedicated pedagogue and that doesn't have as much appeal, obviously. Um, he did have the unique sound. And he did find his niche about how he played in music. And he was a great artist. He was also a little bit too early for TV when he was younger. He was born too young, so TV hadn't kicked off yet. And yeah, he dedicated his life to pedagogy. That's the main reason why he didn't end up on that stratosphere level of jumping on Like the general celebrity. The next one is Aurel Aurel, Aurel Nicolet. To be totally honest, Nicolet, I would nearly prefer him. Personally, he is the proper, true artist. The, the tortured introvert artist, that uh, that cliche or that stereotype, that's Orle Nicolet. That's exactly who that is. Um, he had it all. He had fucking everything. His music was so beautiful. His tone was beautiful. He was a genuinely brilliant artist. Incredibly respected in the flute world. The one thing that maybe didn't get him to that level, he wasn't really the extroverted temperament that would suit tv or being a celebrity in general that was the only thing maybe missing from him and the last one of that era is fucking julius baker and the reason julius baker was not as famous is because he suffered from a horrible medical condition known as being american (laughs) i'm kidding i'm kidding julius baker to be fair was fucking brilliant um again very renowned for being a teacher i think pretty much any american flute player even if you're watching this, you could probably trace your teacher's teacher, your teacher's teacher, teacher back to Julius Baker. He was from New York. He was like the American flute answer to it. There's that great video on YouTube of uh, Baker and Hompal playing the Doppler duet together. It's on like the Dick Cavett show, whatever the fuck that is. You know, these American shows. And he's like, there's a bit of an argument in the world about who's the best flute player. Is it Europe's John Pierre Rampal or is it our guy, Julius Baker? and it's ridiculous but it is class but it was just man he's american and the american thing i don't know i just don't like americans but he didn't have in my opinion judas baker didn't quite have that charm that lovable charm for tv hompa was genuinely lovable and charming and charismatic and he didn't really find that niche either that hompa did with baroque music incredible player and again an incredible pedagogue and also, I have to say, for my ear personally, I don't think Julius Baker's sound was that unique. I don't listen to a recording and go, that's Baker. But I get that was Jean-Pierre Rampal. So that was the first king of the flute. Even though there was flute players before him, he joined. He was the first one to become that commercially and artistically successful. But it's not going to last forever. So, chapter two. The next flute player is R. Jimmy. James Galway, Sir James Galway, excuse me, I'm going to open my drink. 
kind of thirsty in your mouth. Oh, man. So the drink this week on the podcast, it feels like a natural moment to mention this. The drink on the podcast this week is a fucking stunner. It's called Spetsy. I did mention this on the podcast with Jakob. It was one of the mixers we used, but honestly, I can... I have such sketchy memories of that podcast in general. Um, but it is, it's the it's the half Coca-Cola, half orange lemonade or half Fanta drink. So it's it's 50-50. It's not really 50-50. Depends on the brand. This brand's a little bit more Fanta than it is Coke, but it's the two mixed together. Um, this one is Powlaner Spetsy, which for the video watchers, you can see the beautiful logo and colours. Powlaner also make uh, beer. They are a beer production company, but they make soft drinks. This is non-alcoholic. It's just Fanta and Coke mixed together. It's so refreshing. It is incredible. It's one of the very few things that Germany got so right. I adore this drink, especially when you're hungover. This stuff is the elixir of life. And while we're on it then, yeah. Until I get some big time sponsor in this podcast, you can still donate. And some of you have, which again, technically makes me a professional podcaster because I'm getting paid to do it. So... Thank you very much for that. But if you wish to donate to the podcast, there's a link in the bio here. There's a link in the Spotify bio. There's a link in... If you hit the links in my social media profiles, you'll find a little button where you can donate. Now, I would say donate whatever the price of a can of Dr. Pepper is in your country. And if you can do that once every two months. If you if you listen to this podcast every week and you get... Sorry, that, there's a lot of bubbles in that if you listen to this podcast every week and you get four hours of entertainment a month and you thought, that's great, four hours of free entertainment, I'd pay three quid for that. Send me over three quid. All it does is it, yeah, it contributes to the cost of running this podcast, which are not fucking cheap. The lights, I tell you, this purple light, man, sucking me dry out of electricity. And as you can see, the, the equipment setup has been getting, it's been getting better here, guys. You can see this, the cover on the microphone and I've upgraded my, my box here to have two microphones to interview. Here, it's getting good, and this, it's your money that does it. So, if you wish to donate to the podcast, you can. Anyway, let's get back to that. Um, James Galway, Sir James Galway. Now, Juan Pal, he's fluting around Paris. He is French, and he lived in Paris, and he's fluting around the city in the sixties, and he's knocking it out of the park. He's a household name, and a wee Irish fella goes along to study at the same place Juan Pal did, the Paris Conservatoire, in the sixties as well. And that wee Irish boy is James Galway, born in 1939 in Belfast. Of course he was. All uh, handsome, genius, artistic wonders of the world are born in Belfast. So Galway grew up in Belfast, played in flute bands, you'll know that from episode 5, and he went on to study in London at a very young age. Studied with uh, Jeffrey Gilbert and all those really famous British flute players. And then it was that kind of age where people started to realise already he was a truly exceptional flute player. Technically, really exceptional. And then he went to Paris to do his postgraduate studies or his master's, whatever it was at the time, um, with a guy called Gaston Cunel, who was the professor at the Paris Conservatoire. But Rompal fever had taken over Paris at this time. Now, the first thing I say is, Rompal, or sorry, Galway had set himself apart from the rest already. He'd already done it because he has an unbelievable technical ability that he's already shown at this point and his tone. And yeah, I have to talk about both of them. So 
Galway had an iron technique even by the time he was in his late teens, early 20s. He can literally play anything. You know, uh, Paz set a new standard of technical excellence and how fast you can move your fingers and how fast you can play and the quality of the sound. He set the bar up there and Galway jumped over it. And people jumped over Galway's bar and it will continue to be like that. But there was literally nothing that James Galway couldn't play. He was, his technique was incredible. But the main thing that sets Galway apart was his tone. The sound he made out of the flute. He's one of the few flute players, if you hear James Galway play and you don't see him, you know it's James Galway. Straight away you're like, yeah, that's that's Jimmy. His tone is instantly recognisable. Um, the vibrato, so the shaking and the sound, that's one of the key characteristics of it. Funny enough, a lot of people shit on Galway for his vibrato, like, oh, it's too wide, it's too present, it's too this, it's too that. Go listen to your recording of Marcel Moyes, who has the exact same vibrato. The exact same fucking thing, but he doesn't get shit on because he's French. But when it's Jimmy, because of all the things Jimmy did later in his career, uh, people are like, oh, it's too much and blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of bad bad press and a bad rep Galway gets for what he did in the second half of his career. But I'm about to explain to you why he did it. And I think we should remember how much he did before that. So anyway, early 20s, he's already incredibly unique. Now, he's already got this very unique sound as well, so he's not everyone's taste, which is fair, but you cannot, qual- you cannot fault the quality of his sound. The quality, you know, the the sound, the tone, it's vibrant, it's singing, it's this pure golden sound, and you, you just know it's him. So anyway, he went on, after in Paris, he went on to climb every flute summit there was. He first of all became principal flute of the London Symphony Orchestra, which is one of the biggest jobs in the world, before he went on to take the big job in orchestral flute playing. The principal flute of the Berlin Philharmonic when they were conducted by Herbert von Karajan. Now that is arguably the greatest orchestra of all time. There's a good point to be made for that to say Herbert von Karajan's Berlin Philharmonic were the gold standard of any orchestra. They were incredible. And their principal flute player was James Galway. Even when he turned up for the interview, he had problems getting to the interview. I'm sure a lot of you know this story. He had problems getting there, uh, travel problems through Germany, and he turned up late. And the secretary had said, we've already hired a new principal flute. I'm sorry, the auditions are closed. And Galway said, listen, the least you could do out of politeness is listen to me play. I've came all this way, just listen to me. And he insisted and he insisted and the orchestra and Karyan turned up and thought they'd have a bit of fun with him. And they made him play his excerpts from memory and they made him do some weird stuff and play some improvisation stuff. He did it all. Played it all from memory, played some Irish music on the improvisation thing. And then... That was it. They went, no, we're giving him the job. Jimmy's our new flute player. And James Galway said, I'll think about it. Which in German culture, especially at that time, unheard of. If you're offered a job, you take it. Nearly out of fucking politeness. And Galway said, no, I'll think about it. He wasn't going to think about it, but he made them wait. And he took the job. And then taking that job, that's already cemented you as one of the best flute players in the history of music. Because, yeah, you got the job. But in 1975, he quit the Berlin Philharmonic. Now, no other flute player has ever quit the Berlin Philharmonic. And he quit because he wanted to go on a solo career. Now, already, by 1975, so what age would he be? 36? By that age already, he has climbed every summit there is to climb in that classical world. It's already there. So, he quits... He goes solo and it works. He goes big. 
he goes big. So instead of finding a niche like Compound did with the Baroque music, Galway doesn't do that. Instead, he just does fucking everything. And I mean everything. Every single piece of flute rep that he can get his hands on, he records them and he plays them in concerts. And he does it at a shockingly fast rate. You look at the amount of albums Galway's recorded, especially in those early years, you're thinking, how did he find the time to do all that? And a concert recital tour. He recorded every part of the flute rep. And it must be said, unlike Compal, Compal was incredible, but some of his recordings are a bit... Uh, just a bit, uh, apparently he didn't practice for some of them and he just wasn't that fussed and he was living a good life. And that's fine. Yeah. That's not James Galway. James Galway was hell fucking bent on making sure everything was absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. Again, you might not like the style of what he did, but you cannot fault the quality. The, the recording and touring schedule is monstrous and everything he did was perfection in that style. Pure dedication work ethic <clears throat> and professionalism just a pure love of excellence and this starts setting them aside not just that he's a great flute player but he's doing it everywhere all the time if there's a piece of flute rep he's recorded it and he's got it out and in one year he's shit out fucking 10 cds he's just making it and making it and making it and he becomes the gold standard because if you look for any recording Galway's done it so this starts setting them aside now next so that's on him on the level 2 level of fame He's became famous for a flute player. He's became famous for a classical musician now. Now he needs to go on. And who comes along? The television. The TV's back again. And Galway, much like his uh, his former... Uh, not mentor, he wasn't a mentor, but... Like his mate, Jean-Pierre Rompel. James Galway is marketing gold on TV. Again, he's charming. He's intelligent. He's articulate. He's funny. He's charismatic. And the best thing about him? He's Irish as fuck. He's so Irish. And like, you know, lads here, you can't you can't say no to an Irishman. Especially with the Belfast accent. He was made for the cameras. Just like Hompal, he was absolutely made for them. He was he loved being honest in interviews. He wasn't afraid of controversy. He was a virtuoso off stage as well as on. I seriously recommend going and watching videos of John, James Galway in his younger days doing interviews. Especially the one we did where he speaks French the entire way through on French TV. Man, he's He's a joy to listen to. He's sp- his personality sparkles. Like he's a bit of a prick as well. He can come across very arrogant, but he's a pure virtuoso. I I adore it. It's a performance. Um, and he did do kids TV, much like Compal. He actually appeared on Sesame Street, but he did it quite a few times. Compal did like a one-off thing. Galway went on Sesame quite a few times, and also he spoke and acted in it as part of it. And that was part of the charm, not just his playing, but this bearded Irishman. You know, he turned up the rehearsals and all as well and did concerts in like leather jackets and his big beard and it was just, and he rode a motorcycle and he just had this whole package. And then he also had the gold flute, which really helped. You know, you're on TV, he's getting pictured and this beautiful 14 carat gold flute just shining. It adds like a mythical level to things. Now this has all been achieved, by the way, in the 70s. So before Galway's even hit the age of 40, he's done all this. Literally climbed every fucking summit, recorded every piece, played every venue, went on solos with every single conductor. There's nothing he hasn't done. By the time he's 40, it's all done. So, James Galway, being James Galway, thinks, what do I do to get more famous? What's the next challenge? I don't just want to keep doing this. I want to go further. And he wants to go to Rampa level fame, maybe even more. Because he's already recorded everything for flute multiple times. I need to diversify. I would do the same, by the way. If I'd done all that by the time I was 40, I'd be like, yeah, what am I doing next? I'm going to get out there. I'm going to do something fun. 
to do anything. When you're that famous, you can do whatever the fuck you want. And he did. So the big breakthrough moment was he released a cover of John Denver's Annie song. John Denver, um, yeah, sung Country Roads as well. He had a song called Annie Song and James Galway did a flute cover of it and released it as a single. Now, I don't think people appreciate how big a deal this is, but Annie Song by James Galway gets to number three in the UK charts. Number fucking three. He goes on top of the pops, man. If you don't know what Top of the Pops is, go check it out. It's actually gone now, I think. Like, it came back for a wee while, unofficially, but it never worked. But it was gone, like, 15 years ago. Top of the Pops is, like, a show every week where, like, a live audience would be there. And whoever was top of the charts that week would play. But it was actually all pre-recorded. And But, yeah. And the, the singer's not mine. But still, it was a big show. It was a big, big show. But it wasn't for classical musicians. This is for pop musicians. And James Galway gets onto it the first one really get there as a classical artist and climb up like people are talking about Lizzo now for how much good she's done the flute Galway did all this before and he was actually good at the flute and he didn't you know fat shame his colleagues like fucking Lizzo pot calling the cattle black much (laughs) okay I don't know much about the Lizzo case yet I'm not going to jump into it too much but I'm just saying like yeah don't be don't be fat shaming your colleagues Especially when you were running about Belfast looking for a spice bag three weeks before. You miserable witch. Anyway, right. Okay, I'll do a Lizzo episode later. I'm going to break all your hearts, man. Anyway, the UK charts. So he's in it. Number three. Can I tell you, the week James Galway got to number three in the charts. Number one was You're the One That I Want by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John from the film Grease. Now, obviously, you're not going to get above that. But what he did finish above, just below in fourth place, The Rolling Stones. Miss you. Boney M, Rivers of Babylon, the Bee Gees doing Night Fever, Black Sabbath would never say that, Shawaddy Waddy with a little bit of soap, ACDC, Rock and Roll Damnation, Rosalie by Thin Lizzy, Jimmy got ahead of Thin Lizzy, The Clash, we're there with White Man and Hammersmith, uh, Elvis Costello, above them all, he's above them all, man that's incredible to do that as an artist. So now, James Galway is a household name, like a genuine household name by the time he's 40. If you ask anyone of an older generation, especially in the UK or Ireland, or you say to them, you play the flute, the first thing they will say is, any song, James Galway. Straight away. It was incredible. It was a, it, Nothing like that's ever happened on the flute since, and nor will it ever happen. So does he stop there? Does he fuck? And now he's shooting off to places where no classical musician has been, never mind a flute player. So he goes to collaborations, much like our friend Hompal, he does do classical collaborations you know he plays with uh, Neville Mariner quite a lot he records with Martha Argerich and you know he gets to the top classical players but Jimmy goes beyond that and just starts climbing the entertainment world now he has done collaborations with Elton John Stevie Wonder Ray Charles Joni Mitchell Roger Waters and the Chieftains among many others like Jesus Christ man imagine doing all that climbing Berlin Phil LSO doing the whole thing and then going fuck I'm going to play with Elton John now Yes, man. I would do exactly the same thing. It would be great. Man, that, that, fuck. Like, how many musicians have been principal flute in Von Karajan's Berlin Philharmonic and played on top of the pops with the Boomtown Rats and the Bee Gees? I mean, fucking mic drop, man. Up that. And he's from Belfast. He even played the flute in the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. Fucking superstardom. That is one of the most famous film soundtracks of all time. James Goldwyn does the flute parts on it. All the wee lovely flute solos. That's all Jimmy. He now stands at over 30 million records sold. 
He's got a knighthood and he's pretty much got every single award going from the classical music world to the pop world, including the Brit Award. He's done the fucking lot. So anyway, we're going to analyse it quickly. We're going to sum it up like we did with Rampal to see what the theme is. So it starts off, same as Rampal, fucking class at the flute and a very unique sound and technique to stand him apart. Now instead of where Rampal has his niche with Baroque music, Jimmy conquers the orchestral world. LSO Berlinfeld climbs right to the top. Now, same like Rampal, level 3, or the third bit to get to the next level of celebrity, his charm and his personality get him on TV and make him perfect for TV. Now, Top of the Pops takes Jimmy to that level of celebrity that Rampal probably had, maybe a little bit more, and then 40 more years of collaborations and concerts and projects take him beyond it. He's way more successful commercially than Humpal ever was, than anyone will ever be. He went stratospheric. Now, his contemporaries, the people who nearly had the throne, we're talking about when he was in his classical heyday. Because obviously it's anyone from the last 80 years, but we'll talk about, you know, the sort of 70s and 80s and when he was really at his classical best. Um, so one contemporary that nearly got there was William Bennett, a friend of Jimmy's. They studied together. He kind of had it all. He had that niche as well with Baroque music that Hompal would have had. They did not have the personality for TV. And to be honest, he just couldn't compete with Galway's output. No one can record that much and tour that much and make that much, that many different styles of music, chamber music, orchestral music, solo music, and keep churning it out. That was all. So there was no space for Bennett. And he was a prick as well. Um, Jeannie Backstresser. Honestly... She kind of ticks all the boxes for me. She was a really great musician, incredible food pair, unique sound, climbed the trees, climbed the summits of the music world. It pains me to say it, but I really think one of the reasons why Jeannie Backstresser didn't get to that level of fame is because the world wasn't ready for a woman to be climbing those tree, those those uh, summits yet. If yeah, if she was a man, it might have been a very different case. But I think it's the seventies and eighties as a woman. I just don't think it was ever really possible for which is sad to say and the other one we have put in is Peter Lucas Graf because he's very like Arlene Nicolet that we talked about earlier the consummate introvert genius of a musician that stereotype incredible musically superior to most musicians um, but just didn't really suit TV or fame and that was it just couldn't get ahead of it so we're going to move into our last royal. So here we are, the current king, the monarch incumbent, Emmanuel Bayou. So we've talked about the former two kings of the flute, and here we are, the one at the minute. At 53 years of age, Emmanuel Bayou, Manu, is showing no signs of slowing down, and he's at the peak of his powers. Now, Bayou is the current king of flute undeniably so especially after the news yesterday which we'll talk about but anyway he was born in 1970 and he burst onto the scene a la michael richards in 1992 when he wins both the concours de genève and the principal flute job at the berlin phil in the same year 22 years of age now up to this point didn't really do many recordings non-commercial no commercial recordings obviously he was making a name for himself as being an incredibly renowned flute player he studied with Michel de Bust in Paris, as the, the other two lads also studied in Paris. Um, and after that, he went and spent two years studying extensively with Orly Nicolet, who we've talked about already, who was actually his neighbour. They're both Swiss, 
and it was his neighbour and he spent two years perfecting his plan, which turned out to be a very wise idea. Because Nicolet also prepared him for the Berlin Phil job interview. You know, this is for the Berlin Phil and gets the job at 22 years of age. The same job Jimmy Galway had held previously. The flute job of the world. And now he starts gigging. He starts recording as a soloist. He starts getting himself out there, especially from 1997 onwards. That's when it really starts snowballing. Um, and he shoots off then. So he has recorded everything in the flute rep. Even more than Galway, he's recorded everything as a soloist, as a chamber musician, and as an orchestral musician in the Berlin Philharmonic. He has recorded everything. Every fucking thing, contemporary music included. If you name a piece, Bowie's recorded it. He's done it at some point. Now, what set him apart a little bit? He didn't go down the TV route, as are two uh, former monarchs. He does feature on TV, obviously. You know, he plays in a lot of concerts and, you know... Um, as a performer, as a soloist, but I think that's more of the change in nature of television itself as opposed to him. He doesn't do talk shows and he hasn't showed any desire to do a crossover into the pop world. Instead, Emmanuel Bayou has found new summits. He's created new summits to climb within the classical music world. So, um, quite strange about Bayou, or quite, how do I say, unique, is unlike Jean-Pierre Rampal and Jimmy, Bayou doesn't develop this incredibly unique and instantly identifiable sound. He doesn't have that. I know people think he does, but he doesn't. What It's actually the opposite of what makes him so renowned. It's his flexibility, his malleability, his adaptability in both his sound and his musical style and his expression that make him stand out. He's so adaptable. There's no quintessential Bayou style. Um, instead, we've come to associate everything he does as like the gold standard of authenticity, Artistic intention, poise, grace. And he even said himself, of his style, I try to change style, colour and phrasing, the way I breathe and articulate to suit the piece I am playing. I do not represent any particular notational style. So basically, if you ever hear a recording and think, fuck, that's perfect. It's perfect and it's nuanced and it's beautifully balanced, but I wonder who it is, then it's probably Bow. Um, you don't always recognise the sound. And that's it kind of gets out of the way. His ego gets out of the way and he lets the music speak. Um, so it's very different to Galway and Rampal, who immediately you hear them and go, yeah, that's them. That's Rampal or that's Galway. You do not get that with Emmanuel Bayou. We saw that in the game. I played with uh, Juan, Juan Cusio, last week. Um, who was He was great at the game where we guessed the flute pair, but guessing Bayou is not easy. And you think it is. Um, but he's gained a lot of respect in the flute world. And in the classical music world, to be honest, he's gained the kind of respect in the classical music world as a flute player that I don't think any other flute player had done before to that level, just by sheer continued dedication to absolute perfection and excellence. So, like, he's as big a name in the classical music world as any pianist or any violinist in the world now, and he's done it without doing any crossover stuff. It's very, very unique. Um, and this then led to a lot of media attention, and guess what about Mr. Bayou? He is also marketing gold. He is also articulate. He's intelligent, funny, and charismatic. And the cameras fucking love him. He actually speaks multiple languages flawlessly. I had the I had the pleasure of meeting him recently in a French-speaking surrounding. I was speaking French to him, and he switched to English, and his English was better than mine. 
and it was actually annoying because I'm very jealous of him. He's so charming and he's so kind and he's so wonderful. It's it's annoying. I'm jealous of him. But anyway, by the early noughties, Baud has cemented himself as a truly great artist. But where does he go next? So he's got to that level that Jimmy and Hompal got to. They're going off to do their crossover or their collaborations or different things and pushing the boat out. Where does Hompal go? He looks to contemporary music. Now, I have lost count and I tried, to get, I tried to get a number together for this podcast, but it's a lot of work of how many concerto premieres Emmanuel Baud has given. So how many pieces has he played for the first time? It's it's incredible. He's playing concertos all the time by new new uh, composers and new artists constantly. He's recorded countless new pieces and he still does it. That's something that Rampal and Galway both avoided. Okay, Rampal did record the Boulez Sonatine, but neither of them got into the avant-garde or the contemporary style of music or the contemporary style of writing. They both avoided it like the fucking plague, man. They wouldn't go near it. But Rampal, or sorry, Bau does. And that sets him apart and it gives him genuine legitimacy in the classical music world. Um, and he's also really dedicated to finding out unknown pieces from the repertoire, from the Baroque and classical areas. He's digging up everything and he's an expert in the flute. He knows everything, he knows every note of every edition. He's a fucking genius. And like even now, when he's still recording this, he's at 53, he could sit back, but he's not. He's recording groundbreaking or unique discs he's still doing things that he doesn't need to do like his latest album was called romances and it was works for other instruments played on the flute just before that he had an album of only solo flute works just things for the flute no other instruments um and the thing is he's happy to do that it's exceptional to go back and record a flute and piano album so romance is only flute and piano with his fame, he could record with a massive orchestra. He could do bigger orchestras, bigger arrangements, but he doesn't. He goes back to the intimate, delicate, familiar world of chamber music, which is not something that big superstars do. But again, that shows Emmanuel Bayou makes art for art's sake, and there's not much ego coming into his plan. Genuinely, I know he looks like he's egotistical, but in his plan, there is very little ego in Emmanuel Bayou. If any. Especially when you compare him with uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Rompal and Galway. Like, Bayou could be sitting back. He could kick up his trotters now. He's 53. He could just record some shite albums. Fire a few things out. Do a couple of classic melodies and make a fortune. But he's not. He's recording weirder discs and more dedicated music. It's incredible. I, I don't know where he gets the motivation to do it. You know, he's, he's working on film scores at the minute. He has done recently, but he's not working on like Hollywood blockbuster movies. He's working on genuinely great movies. The one he worked on recently was that one. The compo- the composer for the score was Alexander or Alexandre Desplat or Desplat, if you want to spell it like that. Um, the sound of the shape of water wasn't that it? He worked on that incredible score, and he does it for genuine artistic reasons. Also, Desplat was a flute player and got him involved. I'm sure Bayou is offered constantly to do movie soundtracks or to do pop concert gigs and all that kind of thing. I'm sure he's offered a shitload of money for it, but he doesn't do it. He never does it. Um, And just yesterday, Emmanuel Bau won arguably the most prestigious prize in classical music for an independent artist, like a single artist. And that is the uh, the Leonie Zonig Music Prize. It's back in Denmark. Um, It's basically a prize that's given out once a year to a conductor or a performer 
or an artist in the classical music world for exceptional ability. So it's open to everybody. Now, I'll give you an idea of who's won it. Last year was Evelyn Glennie, Dame Evelyn Glennie. Um, Barbara Hannigan won it before that. Maris Janssens, Leonidas Kavakos, Simon Rattle, Sheila Bartley, Daniel Barenboim. These are the people that are winning that. So flute players getting on that alone is fucking exceptional. We don't get flute players on this, but Emmanuel Bayou won it. It is the creme de la creme of classical music, that list. So it shows that he has just climbed every single summit. And as a flute player... That's incredible, because normally we ha- they have to cross over to find that level of fame. Um, so let's look at this path, the superstardom that we've used so far, and look at Bowes. So he starts again, the same way, fucking class of flute. Instead of this unique sound, his uniqueness lies in his flexibility, adaptability, and excellence in every style he attempts. Instead of a niche, he consistently conquers every aspect of the classical music world. Soloist, orchestral musician, chamber musician, and recording artist every single one of them now tv and celebrity do come as a result and again his personality suit perfectly to it but instead of crossovers or collaborations Paiu just finds new things to do in the world he creates new challenges for himself and then goes and smashes them and it pushes him further than any other flutist has went for recognition without ever sacrificing artistic values Again, he gets sent back, he can kick up his trotters and make a living off playing Disney tunes for a fortune. But even now, if you go to an Emmanuel Bayou concert, it'll probably be more likely to get something like the Elliot Carter Concerto or the Dalbavi Concerto or some obscure Baroque trio you've never heard of before you would get him playing a Mozart Concerto. Even for him at this point in his career, the Mozart Concerto feels poppy to him. He doesn't do that stuff anymore. He's got so dedicated to the art and he's gone so far that way. Um, it's incredible. It really is incredible and he's single-handedly bringing the image of flute higher in the classical music world because he sticks purely to that world and he just conquers it man he's incredible so we'll talk about some contemporaries there was only really two that i put down in this list that got to that level um that could have been Bowie if Bowie wasn't there the first one is jasmine Choi, because i'd say she's probably the biggest female flute player in the world and again, I don't think the world was quite ready for a female flute superstar back then. It might be now, but when she was especially starting to creep up with her career, that was one of the reasons she didn't get as famous as Bowie. And also, she suffered just from being around at the same time as Bowie, because Bowie is so exceptional exceptional, and so superhuman that you can't compete with him. But Jasmine Choi came very close, and does come very close. And if anyone was ever going to take that seat, it would have been her or Dennis Boryakov. Currently the principal for LA Phil. Pure flute technique, he's probably the best in the world. He's fucking incredible with what he does. But I think he does like that charm and charisma and marketing goal that Bowie has. That would take him on the TV or take him on to those stratospheric heights. So that was the only two. Nobody, for the love of fuck, do not come in and tell me that Amy Porter should be on that list. I, I'm fucking fell up hearing about Amy Porter man too American she's not getting on the list anyway we're nearly at the end of this podcast lads let's wrap this up so we're going to conclude this I want to say first of all all three players here were special and I love and appreciate them all so much if you can't tell already by the tone I've had this podcast in I love them man they're all three of them there is always this question of taste and the three of them in their style of music are very very different but I, as a flute player i'm in so much awe of all three of them that they change what my taste is my taste becomes what they do 
because I love all three of them so much. I'm so and admi- I admire them so much that they change what I think is my taste. That's how good they are. Um, and I hope this podcast has sort of showed why these three lads have stood out over all the other great flute players of the last 70 years. Unfortunately, in the flute world, there only ever seems to be space for one. One mega superstar at a time. And that is a shame, but I think that's just the way it is. The nature of the instrument, we're not violin, we're not piano, we're not cello. We just don't have space for more than one. But you can join me next week where we are going to, well, I am going to speculate on who could be the next monarch. Who's the heir to the throne when Mr. Bowie finally abdicates? It's like, it's like James Bond, man. Like I'm sitting here thinking, is it time for a woman? Is it time for a person of colour? But um, yeah, we're genuinely going to discuss that. I'm going to look at a couple of players that I think might be able to get there. But more importantly, I'm going to look at the challenges that the next person to take on this title, on this mantle of the monarch of the flute, what challenges they're going to face. The landscape of classical music is changing rapidly, more so than it ever has. And yeah, is the new person going to be able to deal with that? Are they going to be able to embrace it, more important than anything? Or will the flute world even get another one like this? Or have we had our three and that's our fill? Will we ever get to see another Emmanuel Bayou, James Galway or Jean-Pierre Hompel? I don't know. But I'll give it a good fucking go next week. So, probably. I have to get my finger out and write another episode. But I will. So, yeah, guys, I'm recording four episodes this week. So I can chill out in Belfast and record my live episodes. So, or my guest episodes. So bear with me on this. I haven't got an episode yet, an episode idea for the one after next week. So if you've had any topics you would like me to cover, please, for the love of Christ, get in touch. Because I need to get some ideas in my head. So anyway, before I go, the usual shit, get on to social media. Give me a follow over there. The numbers need to go up, lads. I need to get sponsorship. I need money. I need to swing around on that new Spider-Man game on the 21st of October and kick Venom's bum and I can't afford not to until I get some money for it. So throw me money. Uh, give me your like. Le- just give me your your clicks on social media. Give this video a like if you're watching it on YouTube. Throw out a comment, please, for the love of God. Throw something my way to just get the algorithm gods on my side. And hopefully, as a wee reward, I will get you some big fish on the podcast soon to be interviewed. Anyway, guys, big smooches. I love you all. I appreciate you all. Thank you so much for being here. And have a lovely weekend. And yeah. Goodbye, I suppose. Until next week. Bye.